hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Is your novel manuscript in need of structure and support? If so, I'm here to help. I'm Nicole a certified book coach and developmental editor who helps fiction writers find their voice and develop stories so they can craft their best book yet. Right now, I'm offering a giveaway with a 50-page developmental edit and a 30-minute coaching call for writers like you. For a chance to win, go to theshitaboutwriting.com and enter on the giveaway page. You can also find me at nicolemeyerauthor.com or on Instagram at nicolemeyerwrites. Hi everyone, welcome back to another Books with Hooks. Before we dive in today, we just want to let you know some exciting news. So as of early next year, we're going to be putting out a weekly newsletter, which we're extremely excited about because it's important to us to get more practical and engaging content to you. But we'd like you to sign up early, so please go to our website, theshitaboutwriting.com, go to the newsletter page and sign up for that so that from next year when we put the newsletter out, 
you will be one of the first who will get that in your inbox. Alrighty, so let's kick this off. Cece, will you read us your first query letter? Let's do this. Dear Cece, you state on your website that you're a sucker for novels about dysfunctional families, especially wealthy ones. Well, I hope you'll consider my manuscript about a non-wealthy family, but don't worry, they're still messy. South of Nowhere, my debut novel, is an upmarket women's fiction story about grief, loss, and the everyday impacts of growing up in a community challenged by the effects of climate change. Willa Warren is about to graduate college when, over a plate of chilaquiles, her life changes in an instant. Her mother, Bonnie, tells her she's been diagnosed with an aggressive cancer. Six months later, Willa is back in San Diego, stressed out by the stacks of credit card bills, fielding her concerned father's phone calls, and sorting through a pantry of expired superfood supplements that were supposed to save her mother's life. As her peers jet off into their bright, wide-open futures, Willa feels left behind. To top it off, her father's reemergence in her life feels sudden, forcing her to confront old wounds from a dysfunctional childhood. Weighed down by grief and feeling strapped financially, Willa begrudgingly takes a position at Hotel Del Mar, a famous property with a storied history, but because of climate change, an uncertain future. Unexpectedly, the job turns into a lifeline, a welcome distraction for Willa as she takes on the emotional work of tying up loose ends of her mother's life. One evening, she meets and immediately falls for Jack, a reporter attending a party at the hotel. Jack's easy confidence and postgraduate success inspire her, but his ambition is also a reminder of dreams she put aside when her mom got sick. Later in the summer, when Willa learns through Jack that the family who owns Hotel Del Mar are bribing members of the city council to approve a controversial expansion that would jeopardize her hometown's already crumbling coastline, she finds herself caught between her relationship and a job she's grown to love. For fans of Writers and Lovers by Lily King and Joaquin Trier's Worst Person in the World, South of Nowhere is a darkly comedic story about moving forward after loss. It explores the inexplicable, complicated loyalties we feel to the places where we are from and the people we love. A bit about me. I am originally from Salinas, California. In 2020, I was selected to attend the juried Northern California Writers Retreat, workshopping the first pages of this manuscript there. I have also shared my work in classes offered by the Ruby and Hugo House, and a short essay of mine was published in Angel's Flight Literary West. The shit no one tells you about writing has helped me immensely on my editing and querying journey. Thank you for this podcast, and thank you for taking the time to read my pages. All the best, Grace. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, give us your take on that. I really like this query letter. It's very well written in keeping with our recent promise to share word count. It is about 480. Both my query letters today are the same word length. So that's interesting. Uh, Rounding it up, of course. So as I started reading this, I thought to myself, it's very interior based. All of the plot elements are framed through her interiority, as opposed to what's actually happening on the page, the things that a camera could capture. And then I got to the very end and she had the comps for fans of writers and lovers, right? And that is an interiority-based novel. Of all the things that happened to Casey in that novel, everything is interior-based. All the conflict, all the setup, and it works really, really well. It's one of the best novels ever. So I would move those comps up because if I had had that information going in, I wouldn't have felt not exactly frustrated, but a little confused, I think, when it came to, okay, so what, what's the plot, right? I kept, because you said upmarket. So I kept thinking, where's the plot? Where's the plot? It seems like there are a few plot events. Her dad comes back and she meets the reporter and 
there's the conflict between the hotel that she's working at, bribing members, and at the same time, she really likes this job, and obviously she's feeling grief. But all of these were framed, again, through her interiority. So if I had had that information from the get-go, I wouldn't have felt anything other than, oh, okay, this is a perfect comp situation. So I would definitely move that up. It is a challenge, I want to be honest about that, to write an interiority-based novel. Literary fiction is, is incredibly difficult, but what isn't? I would say that right now, I would compress this. There's a lot of details. It's stuff like sorting through a pantry of expired superfood supplements and over a plate of chilaquiles. And it's not that the detail isn't great, but I would save the detail for the pages. And by the way, you're doing that amazingly on the pages. We'll get to that. I just think I would compress. And as a final note, I would just say that it's true. I do say that I really, really want to read stories about dysfunctional families, especially wealthy ones. I'm sure there are deeper reasons that my therapist could probably tell you about, but my sense is that it has to do with the fact that enjoying watching rich people get in trouble feels somehow less mean than enjoying people who are not rich get in trouble. So, but I'm absolutely open to all dysfunctional family stories. They all seem really, really interesting to me whatever that says about me. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you for that. Okay, what's in those opening pages? So we have our protagonist at the parking lot of a supermarket, and she sees a woman at a distance who's like waving frantically at her. When the woman approaches, it's her old teacher, a teacher she actually really liked. And the teacher's asking about her mom, like, oh my God, how's she doing? And obviously, you know, the teacher's very concerned. Obviously, everyone in town knows that her mom's sick. And she tells her teacher, you know, no, no change, really. You know how it goes. And she's holding a carton of milk, and she's having trouble with that. So the teacher takes the carton of milk just to help her out. And after she says that, after she says there's no change in her mom's situation, they talk for a little bit longer, but she then she goes home. And when she goes home, as soon as she gets in the car, she, she thinks to herself, why did I lie? Because her mom is actually already dead, but she just couldn't bring herself to say it. So she did lie to the teacher, or her former teacher, of course. And then when she gets home, she realizes, oh my gosh, not only does Mrs. Orr, that's the teacher, think my mom's still alive, but now she has my aunt's milk. We have the first few pages of chapter two. Her aunt is in the apartment. We get a little bit of information on her aunt. And, you know, her aunt, when she sees her, she goes, well, I, I'm leaving. Like, it's time. If you need me, I hope that you know that you can always count on me. And she thinks to herself, well, abrupt entrances and exits are her specialty. And she's thinking about her mom when, when the pages end. Great, Cece. Okay, so what was your take on this? Do you feel like these opening pages did the heavy lifting we need them to? It's really good. Like I was really impressed with the quality here. The sharp specifics were just six stars. Like I, I am a fan of sharp specifics. I talk about it a lot when I teach my classes, when I lead the book club. And the author was just killing it here. Like it was so good. The opener is really strong. It's one sentence isolated. I'm in the parking lot of Ralph's when I lie to Mrs. Orr. So that's excellent. The interiority is strong. I would go deeper. I did flag the moments in which I wanted you to go even deeper. So it's things like at first she assumed that the woman that was waving to her was waving to her because she she might have hit her with her car accidentally because apparently that's something she does. And so in order to give a socioeconomic context and in also order to show us what is at the forefront of her mind when something like this happens? I wanted information like, is someone at home going to say, oh, you've done it again? And will she lie to someone at home? Or was she worried about the money? Like things like that. So I have flagged those moments for you and I want it even deeper. But I do want to be fair and say, I'm asking for even deeper. It's already great. It's already deep. I don't think I can read something without without asking questions. I think it's impossible. But it's really, really, really strong. 
I do, however, have a note. I have no idea whether this is going to resonate with the writer, and I don't want the writer to feel any pressure, as always. But here's the thing. She's grieving. Grief makes it hard to connect to a protagonist because it's a sad, sinking emotion, not a juicy story-forward one. And the fact that she's lying about her mom being dead is good because, like, it makes the grief interesting, right? However, I want to know why she's doing it beyond a psychological reason, which was actually not given, but I want to know why. And I'd love it to be an interesting reason, not just not being able to cope, but probably based on the query letter, it's not. Probably it's just she can't cope. So if that's the case, then perhaps would you be willing to change this or at least consider changing it to her interacting with someone who the lie actually matters? Like this is a teacher, a former teacher who she likes. This is one of the good, sweet teachers. So in Writers and Lovers, if you'll remember, the first scene has a clear power imbalance because it's all interiority, sure, but we're talking to the neighbor slash tenant who's a jerk. So there's active emotion with stakes built in. And I want to be clear, it's really, really good, but I would up the tension even more by doing one of these two things. So thank you for sharing. It's amazing. Great, Cece. Thank you. Okay, Carly, now it's your turn. Will you read us your first query letter? All right. Yes. And first, I want to I wanna try and play a little song to get, uh, to get us in the mood for this one. Let me see if this will work. All right. So another episode in which I am covering another book about sex. So I thought I'd add some music for us today. Okay, here we go. Dear Carly Waters, your warmth and wisdom on the shit no one tells you about writing have been such an encouragement to my writing journey. Because you formerly represented Taylor Jenkins Reid, whose poignant storytelling has inspired my own, I'm querying you with my 80,000 word dual POV book club novel, The Virgin Maddie. This book melds the maternal themes of Jane the Virgin and Celeste Ng's Little Fires Everywhere and will appeal to fans of Leanne Moriarty, Taylor Jenkins Reid, and Rebecca Searle. Maddie is pregnant with a kid who wasn't meant to be hers, and it's complicating everything. When Maddie, a 25-year-old influencer, agreed to be a surrogate for her older sister, she hoped it would mend their broken sisterhood. But when her sister Kat becomes miraculously pregnant and no longer wants the child in Maddie's womb, the plan backfires. And Maddie is abandoned yet again. On the bright side, Maddie is indulging unexpected feelings for a nurse who doesn't care that her body is ballooning with another man's child. That is until he realizes Maddie is in love with the baby's father, aka Kat's husband. Kat, meanwhile, is digging herself out of a scandal that could end her marriage and reeling from a shattering family secret. If she can't shed her bitterness and repair the damage caused by her selfish decisions, her fractured relationships may never heal. As Maddie's due date draws nearer, she must determine whether an unexpected baby fits into her fledgling career and triangular love life. Keeping this baby might deliver the unconditional love she's been seeking since childhood, or it could be the thing that severs her family and any hopes for love even deeper. I'm a freelance magazine journalist raising two redheaded boys in Ohio with my college sweetheart. I have bachelor's degrees in English literature and strategic communication. My writing has appeared in Forbes, Fortune, Architectural Digest, Good Housekeeping, Real Simple, Cincinnati Magazine, and other publications. When I'm not sword fighting and snack fetching, I'm planning my family's next adventure and finding typos on menus. Thank you for your time. Sincerely, Elizabeth Wood. Oh, wow. That's pretty intriguing. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, Carly, give us your take on that. 
All right, so off the top, just so you guys know, 341 words. This is tight and punchy. I hope you guys can kind of notice the difference. My my next one on this segment's longer. So yeah, 341 words is this one. Okay, so first thing, uh, just a quick typo, actually. I think Rebecca Searle has an A in it. I, I Just as I was reading this, I, I kind of caught that. So just check Rebecca Searle's name. I think it, there's probably an A in there. So next up, I think this is a really, really interesting and complicated situation, right? We, we lead with it's complicating everything, right? Like, yes, very complicated story. One of the things I don't think is clear enough in this actual query letter is the POV. It seems like dual POV between the two sisters, but you don't spell it out. And I would probably just want to make it a little bit more clear exactly what that structure looks like. I have a lot of questions. I think this is doing its job. Like, does anybody else know about her romantic feelings for her brother-in-law? Have they ever acted on these feelings? These are all really good questions. So I think I think all in all, this encapsulates the book concept really well. The hooks make a lot of sense. You know, the Jane the Virgin, little fires everywhere, kind of with the adoption storyline, a popular novel, obviously, Jane the Virgin is a TV show. Yeah. So th- yeah, this, this has a lot going for it. It's, it's very complex. And uh, I was definitely looking forward to getting the pages. Great. Thank you. Okay. Tell us what was in those opening pages. All right. So we start with our three characters meeting in a hotel room to do the deed, basically. So we have the two sisters and the husband. They all meet in a hotel room. And then the husband goes into the bathroom to ejaculate into a cup so that the sister can then go get it and turkey baster herself, basically. So that's our opening scene. There's a lot going on here. Right. So, I mean, that sounds super compelling. So tell us, did it work? You know what? It really, really did. So here's our here's our first line. The three had gathered for one reason, to make a baby. So right away, we're like, okay, three people to make one baby. Okay, you know, there's a lot going on here. And there's so many things that are kind of happening in the in these opening pages where the author is kind of giving us these Easter eggs. And I think a lot of writers struggle with how much do I reveal? How much do I lead the reader on in order to get them turning the pages? You know, we reveal a secret, but we don't kind of get to the end of what the secret's about. So this novel and these pages are kind of playing with that a little bit. So for one of the examples is, so our character Maddie is is at the hotel front desk as she handed Maddie a key for the 19th floor, which Bry had almost certainly requested. He was predictable like that. So we get to know there's some intimate kind of connections between these three characters in ways that we're going to hope to hope to be revealed. The main thing that stood out to me, I think, which I kind of was getting at in the query is that the head hopping and the POV stuff, right? So I'm struggling a little bit with this part because we're head hopping in scene, which I find very hard to follow as a reader, because we have, for example, in this case, we have dialogue happening between all these characters and then we're hopping between their heads so sometimes maddie will say something and then right after that we're in cat's head and i'm just like okay i'm getting a bit of whiplash like who whose head are we supposed to be in and whose perspective and and when we don't have separate kind of one chapter in this character's point of view the next chapter in the other character's point of view then like that allows us to have really distinct voices and really get to know these characters but when we kind of you know head hop within an actual scene i don't know i find i found that part a little a little bit challenging here because the voices weren't distinct enough to always know who was talking and sometimes i had to kind of like read things again a really interesting point of information for for readers which is interesting to me is that they paid her $5000 and they said in the press pockets of his salmon shorts was a folded check for $5000 a deposit for Maddie I thought there's a few things that were interesting here. It was a check. 
It wasn't a need transfer. And it, this wasn't done in advance. So she made her way here. She you know, hadn't had any money or commitment yet. She was like ready to do this without any money yet. I'm like, girl, like get your money first if this is what you're going to do. And also a check again, like if this is the year 2022, like we would be e-transferring in all these different ways, I think. So unless you didn't want a track record for this $5,000. But anyway, I had a lot of confusion about like why a check and why now? Or maybe there's more money to come. Anyway, I had a lot of questions about the money part. That was really interesting to me. How did they decide on this amount of money? But there's a lot of really interesting kind of bits going back and forth between this trio. So they have a shot before they kind of figure out what they're going to do here. And uh, the man says to family, Bri offered. He winked at Maddie before tossing back the shot. Her groin flooded, remembering the taste of his lips from four summers ago. So now we find out that these two have kissed before. We're building up, building up to the moment where he's going to go off into the bathroom and, and do his business in a cup. So yeah, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of really really strong writing here. I think, as I said, the things that I'm balancing are: is the head hopping in scene working, and is there too many things that are kind of like suggesting their secrets to come without giving us the answers, which kind of just creates this internal frustration for the reader. So I think overall, it's really strong. I, I have a, I have some more notes in here for the for the author, but I have already requested the pages because because I, I really I really, really liked it. So I think it's really strong. The motivations are clear. We kind of understand why everybody's doing this, even though it's a really complicated situation. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. And for our listeners, this is why we generally say try and stay away from omniscient point of view because of this kind of head hopping confusion and the lack of getting super close to a character. Because remember, if you're going to do a godlike narrator who's in everybody's heads, there's a level of objectivity that's required for that when objectivity is not why we come to fiction. We come to fiction to spend time in another character's psyche, in their heads and in their hearts. So sometimes that is better than to try and split it up according to POV chapters and do sort of third person close with each of them. Something definitely to consider. Okay, Cece, let's go to the next query letter. Dear Cece, I can't thank you, Bianca and Carly enough for the many hours of educational entertainment you've provided me as I crawl through LA traffic. Given your interest in dysfunctional families, morally ambiguous protagonists, and high-concept thrillers in the vein of The Push, I'm excited to share my upmarket psychological thriller, Redacted, complete at 90,000 words. It's Emma Klein's The Girls meets Katie Tierris's More Than You'll Ever Know, combining coming-of-age California cult noir with an emotional examination of a true crime phenomenon and the fraught relationships between a daughter and her enchanting narcissistic parents. 36-year-old Lucy Golden is a Los Angeles-based true crime icon, infamous for her acclaimed memoir about the violent murder she committed during her summer in the Oasis with her cult leader father. Battling sex addiction, a stalker fan, and her mother's ego, all she wants is to publish her novel and break out of her tumultuous past. But when her literary attempt is rejected, she's forced to team up with Isaac, a documentary filmmaker who is intent on bringing her face-to-face -face with a cast of players from her torrid history. All the while, Lucy must protect the secret she's kept for 20 years, because if Isaac uncovers the truth, it will surely destroy the story she's been telling and selling all along. Back in 2002, in Coronado, a 15-year-old Lucy is wilting under the shadow of her rock star older sister and her enigmatic mother photographer to the stars. Desperate to find something to write about and put herself on the creative map, she enters a dangerous flirtation with the 25-year-old artist Arthur, who lures Lucy to the desert to reconnect with her estranged father. 
At first, Lucy believes she's found the answer to her prayers, belonging, love, and inspiration abound, but soon enough, she stumbles upon a horrific realization about the children of the Oasis and violently takes matters into her own hands. Alternating between Lucy's present-day filming with Isaac, excerpts of her bombshell memoir and letters to a mysterious friend, Redacted is a cautionary tale about a young girl raised to believe her worth is determined solely by the approval she wins from others and the damning, deadly consequences of that false belief. As the Director of Development at Redacted, I source IP and work with writers who develop, sell, and produce shows like Redacted. My TV production credits also include Redacted. An Atlanta native and California transplant, I am a graduate of Elon University, where I studied media arts and entertainment and theater. I've completed writing courses at NYU and UCLA and studied novel writing with Michelle Richmond. For television writing, I am represented by Redacted at Redacted. In my spare time, I practice tarot with my moon circle, binge true crime podcasts, and explore California wine country. I appreciate your time and energy considering my work. I look forward to hearing from you. Warmly Redacted. Content warning, cult coercion, statutory rape, birth trauma, miscarriage, violence against cis and transgender women, 9-11. Great, Cece. Thanks for that. What was your take on that? This is a really strong query letter. It's about the same length as the one I read before, so around 480 words. I adore the push. If you mention the push, I will already be intrigued. I was I had questions that I did not need to be answered now, which is not a bad thing. But for example, one of my questions was, wait, she wrote about committing a murder and she didn't go to prison because there's no mention of her going to prison. So like, was it self-defense? She get off by reasons of temporary insanity? I don't know. Another question is, I'm not clear on how the literary rejection forces her to team up with the documentary filmmaker. But as long as it makes sense in the pages, like I'm fine to find out later. I would add that it's dual timeline in the first paragraph, just because that's where all the metadata should go. It just helps. I do think the past paragraph right now is really, really strong, but it's mirroring a little bit of what we already know in the present paragraph. So again, not not a huge issue, but if it were me like writing a pitch letter to editors, I think I would frame it differently for the purposes of the author's intention, which is to grab an agent's eyes, you've done your job because I'm so intrigued. I wanted to read this right away. This is super impressive. I would add murder to the content warning just because, you know, it seems pretty obvious that there's probably murder. We, we talked about this last time, but there's so much redacted information here, which I totally get because you want to protect your privacy. But for me, I wanted to know. So I almost wonder if we shouldn't be redacting these things ourselves. Like maybe because I, I get you not wanting everyone to listen to this, but I, I wanted to know more information about the author paragraph. But but I will once I talk to the author, because I will definitely be requesting a full. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Yeah, for our listeners, I think there's a way to include that information for Carly and Cece, and perhaps to just say that everything that's highlighted or everything that's underlined, you ask them to redact it when they read it on air um, so that they do have the full information and are just mindful of which bits of it you don't want them to share. Okay, Cece, what was in those opening pages? So we open up with a timestamp, 2022 Los Angeles. Our protagonist is about to enter the stage. Her publicist is telling her, you're up. She is the daughter of the Diana Golden, who was idolized and feared and famous. But she's thinking to herself, well, I'm infamous, not famous. She is introduced, so she walks stage. She's introduced as the acclaimed memoirist of Rattlesnake Heartbreak Lucy Golden. They are at an event called She Slays, an evening with the modern heroines of true crime. 
And in addition to her, some of the other speakers include an LA Times crime reporter, a pair of comedy crime podcast hosts, and the creator of the latest hit television show about a female vigilante. Her mom is there. Her mom's in the audience. So she's also looking at her mom. She is noticing the familiar faces from her book club, and she starts reading from her memoir. But as she's reading, there's a disturbance. And there's a man who is not one of the regular haters, according to her, at least she doesn't recognize him. And she is bracing herself for the fact that he's going to pull out a gun. She's going to be shot. She's just imagining all these things happening. He bellows his threats. How dare you? Security guards, they do their job. They take the man away. He calls her a monster. She is thinking to herself, you know, breathe, remember your therapy exercises. The crowd says, we love you, screw him, keep going, Lucy. And the fans reassure her and she thinks to herself, good, they believe me. That's what happens. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, so what was your take on them? Again, I want pages. Like, I want a full, I want to read this. I had a whole bunch of line edits just to suggest, which the, the writer will see. I don't have to get into it here. But there were a few missed opportunities, I thought, for like pause pebbles and... Just sentences that could be isolated for more tension. These are really small things. I really like the fact that she's about to go up on stage. It's a tense moment. It says a lot about her. It sets up the scene. I don't like the idea of her reading from her memoir, though. Like, it takes up space. It's not that it's poorly written, because this is really, really well written, but it just slows down the pace. What's too meta, it's too story within the story. I know that your query letter mentioned that we were going to have excerpts from her memoir, I feel like those would probably work better as insert chapters as opposed to just in the middle of the narrative, just because it breaks down the flow. So I would remove, I would remove, I would have her up on stage. I also would have her like say something to the crowd before she starts reading it. Cause usually you say something, you say hello or whatever. I would go deeper in terms of whatever she's thinking about her mom. She thinks of her mom as this narcissistic, really bad person who you know wants her to be famous. And of course, that makes total sense given the characterization that I know of her mom based on the query letter. But I would go even deeper. I would reveal the messy, messy layers. Because for example, when you have a narcissistic parent who wants you to be famous, especially if she's already famous, yes, she wants you to be famous, but probably she doesn't want you to be as famous as she was, even though she says she does. So just lean into those really deep, messy, complicated emotions and reveal the contradictions from the get-go. Because it does up the tension. This is one of the ways that tension can really be fleshed out. The commotion with the gun person, it felt slow to me. That's so weird, right? Because like it's a disturbance in which she's expecting a gun. And I don't know, the emotional calibration was off because she's thinking and noticing his clothes and stuff before she feels the fear. And so that's an easy fix. But it's also things like, first we get a full paragraph of description on the gunman, and then we get the murmurs from the crowd. I think these things need to be woven in, like baked in in a way that feels more organic. Because yeah, it's just slowing down the pace. And that's that's just really strange because it's not supposed to. It's supposed to make me feel scared for her. And I didn't for some reason. I think because she was interiorizing it so much with so much thinking and not enough feeling. So it's excellent. Please don't get me wrong. I, I am incapable of reading something and not offering notes. Please don't think that this is anything other than like a lot of compliments and a lot of interest in reading your work. I really want to really want to see this and I look forward to getting a full. I will reach out to the author. Thanks, Cece. Yeah, for our listeners, when it comes to high octane moments, that's when you cut back on description. You go to emotion, you go to action, because when people are in these moments, they don't have the leisure to be taking things in and processing them in a way that they normally would when they do have the time for this kind of thing. So you're looking at shorter sentences, you're looking at snapshot impressions 
to move the piece along in terms of tension and pacing. Okay, Carly, let's hear our last query letter. Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece, a longtime fan of your podcast, I want to begin by thanking you for your tireless work. Your contribution to the writing community is invaluable, and I am grateful. It would be an honor to receive your feedback on my query letter in the first five pages of Shadow Puppets, my 80,000-word contemporary literary fiction novel, a combination of the frenetic energy of Elena Ferrante's The Days of Abandonment, the frank narration found in Otessa Mashveg's Eileen, and the interiority akin to Whereabouts by Jumpa Lahiri. Shadow Puppets is the harried story of a widow's first year alone. When Marion's husband, Theo, dies in an automobile accident, she is left with a child she loves, but whom she never wanted. Now Marion is forced to raise Lucia on her own, while doubts about her parenting capabilities plague her, and grief hollows her. While Marion stumbles through a cold winter of funeral planning, a job hunt, and communicating with her mostly absentee father, her lifelong best friend Celeste is an ever-present support system. But when her neighbor's 18-year-old grandson, Dimitri, offers to help shovel her sidewalk, Marion takes advantage of his support. Allured by his attention and reliant on his repeated offers of household help, Marion forms an unlikely relationship with Dimitri, which she keeps to herself. Raised by her single mother, now dead, who made ends meet by working at a deli, Marion returns to her pre-marriage job at a grocery store, leading her to confront the classist prejudices she faced in her marriage to Theo, an attorney whose parents disapproved of their partnership. Fielding judgments from her loved ones by her choice and occupation, Marion numbs her pain by surrendering to Dimitri's magnetism, all the while trying to keep a semblance of normalcy for Lucia. When Celeste witnesses an intimate exchange between Marion and Dimitri, Celeste confronts Marion about her deception and tells Marion not to call her for a while. Now, without her husband or best friend, Marion is more bereft than ever. Lacking the support she took for granted and hearing of her father's recent passing, Marion is faced with contemplations she never considered. Who is she without those who mean the most to her? And how far will she go for redemption? I attended the Iowa Writers' Workshop Summer 2022 Graduate Fiction Class with director Lance Samantha Chang, where I workshopped this novel. I am the author of the indie-published children's book, Rosie and the Hobby Form, of which I sold a thousand copies before placing into distribution in Amazon. I'm also a regular contributor to the lifestyle website, Wit and Delight, as well as a freelance writer. My work has appeared in several publications, including the Minneapolis Star Tribune, Lavender Magazine, DIY MFA, The Florentine, an English language publication in Florence, Italy. Shadow Puppets is my debut novel. I've included the first five pages of my novel below. Thank you for your time and consideration. Kalina Cicero. Great, Carly. Thank you. Wow, I'm really interested to hear your take on this one because grief is such a tough one, especially that year after someone passes away. We've said before on the podcast that grief is not an active emotion. It feels so passive because it, it makes people behave in such passive ways as they process that guilt. So I'll be really interested to see how this fares up according to that. So what's your take, Carly? So first of all, I wanted to mention the word count. You guys can probably notice the difference between the two that I read today. So this one was 491. So quite a bit longer than the other one. All right, here we go. I'm going to start at the top. So first of all, I'm not in love with the title. I think we could probably do better here. It's not that it's necessarily bad or anything like that. I'm just, eh, I don't know. I'm just not uh, not getting as much from the actual story. It just seems a bit too um, too metaphorical here. Overall, I mean, it's it's a really good, strong, sad mix of really complex emotions, which, you know, I think everybody who's listening can kind of can kind of gather this. I think the the paragraph that kind of explains exactly, you know, our first plot paragraph that explains what happens is pretty strong. There's a lot going on with the husband dying and we 
the best friend and a flirtation with the neighbor grandson. That's a lot. So that that's great, right? And then our second paragraph, we really get into the weeds a little bit. We talk a little bit about some thematic things we're going to cover with the classism. I think that's interesting, especially for a literary pitch. But the list of kind of the things that she's going to kind of cover in this book just seem a little bit like a list, you know, more more synopsis like. So I have some notes here of some things we can cut, some things that we can also kind of expand on. But overall, I kind of just want everything to kind of come back to the hook where I think in this query, there's some things that kind of wander off. For example, the idea that she mentions about her dad passing when in the previous paragraph, she says that he's absentee. So then I'm like, well, if he's absentee, then obviously his passing is going to affect you. But for the sake of a query letter, I think those are two things that actually probably don't actually belong in this. Again, it's hard for me to tell without having read the whole book. So I think there's just some things that are that are a bit superfluous here that we don't need for the sake of the actual query letter itself. To me, I think what the most interesting parts of this are the unlikely friendship slash potentially inappropriate relationship with the neighbor grandson, and also how she's going to parent moving forward. To me, those are the two most interesting things about this book. And so a lot of this stuff tends to feel a little bit low stake when we're talking about, again, the father's passing, who she really wasn't wasn't all that close with. So, so yeah, I don't know. I, I think there's lots of things that we can trim. But overall, it's really interesting. And for a literary novel, I like when we have some, some meaty things that we're tackling here. So I, I, think, I think there's a lot of actual plot, even though there is the grief hook. It seems like we're going to actually get to some real plot here, which I'm excited about. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. All right. What was in those opening pages? So our opening pages have three chapters. So they're quite short. So our first chapter is a scene where we watch the husband leave the family for the last time, basically like kiss them goodbye. The wife is doing kind of some household chores. The husband says goodbye to the daughter and then off he goes. And then we understand obviously that he passes. So then our main character has to tell the daughter, Lucia, that that he's dead. That's our opening first chapter. Our second chapter is them just like absolutely overcome with grief laying in bed and the best friend that was mentioned in the query letter, she shows up. Chapter three is her realizing she's going to have to get a job and we're starting to like make a list of all the things we have to do now that the husband has passed. So that's kind of our, our three short chapters. Great. And what was your take on them? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I struggle a little bit with how distant the writing is. I'm going to read you guys some bits so you can so you can kind of understand understand what I'm talking about. So, he returns her cereal bowl to her and comes over to me in the kitchen where I watch the scene unfold. I'm back to unloading the dishwasher and have a ramekin in my hand. The ramekin slips from my grip and shatters. Porcelain skips and jumps across the floor. Theo hands me the broom, kisses me, reminding me he won't be home until after Lucia's in bed. I wanted to run errands, try to make it to yoga class with Celeste, but instead I have to stay home with Lucia cook her dinner, bathe her, do all the normal things mothers do for their children. I am sweeping when he leaves. I don't even watch the door close behind him. When I get the news, I fall to my knees. I'm surprised when the floor catches me. I expect it to crumble, to bury me. I crawl over to the couch, wait for Lucia to wake up. I try to sleep, but only for a few minutes. Sleep won't come. I know that. Lucia finally comes down to the stairs, sleepy, and surprised to find me on the couch and not in my bed next to her dad. She finds us in our bed every morning." So like I I found just like even even the part where she would probably ha- would have been present right the the part where he is there very distant it's a very like distant observation of like what's happening in her house from a very kind of 
spectator point of view. And then we get to the part about the grief and the death. And again, still feels so distant. And it's a choice, right? Everything in fiction, especially literary fiction is a very specific choice. So I get the sense that this is a really intentional stylistic choice. But I just want everybody to know kind of how that comes off to me, because even when things are intentional, there is reader implications for that. And for me, it's just, again, feels a bit distant. And I echo things that that CC already said in, in this podcast episode about grief and it being very interior. And it's an inward emotion that sometimes it's kind of hard to to follow along with. But it's a very intense, we build tension as we're going into chapter two and chapter three. But yeah, it's a very intentional style choice where some people might love the way it's written and some people might find it challenging. So I found I kind of really start to, I started to feel the pain and emotion probably by the end of the second page as we're kind of making our way into the next chapter. A lot of it just, it does feel really realistic, which there is a certain beauty to writing fiction that mirrors real life in such an honest and gripping and and sad and tragic way. But for the sake of fiction and entertainment and page turning, right? These are the things that we grapple with when we think about marketability and saleability and, and reader expectation and how people are going to kind of come to it in their own ways. So another thing I wanted to point out that the author did really well is a lot of authors have a hard time figuring out how to introduce the appearance of other characters that show up in the novel. So I just kind of wanted to mention how this person did it because I thought this author did a great job. So so our character's in bed and, and she's bereaved. Light is beaming in from behind Celeste and I have to squint to make out her figure, even though I know exactly what I will find there. Celeste with her fair skin, glossy black hair, straight as a razor's edge, the couple of brown dots on her nose, the smattering on her cheekbones. She comes over to me in bed and puts her face in front of mine so I can't avoid her eyes. I smell coffee on her breath. She's so close. I just thought that was a really beautiful way of like, you know, these characters know each other. She says, I know exactly what she looks like. And yet, you know, in in this state of grief, she's still explaining what she looks like. And I thought that was a a really beautiful line. And another line, the, the last couple lines from the sample I really liked, which was, I feel like a bowl of salt from which people keep pinching, pinching, pinching. I worry eventually I will take the last pinch and leave myself. Then who will take care of Lucia? So it's it's beautiful writing. It's beautiful writing. But yeah, the grief, it, it's interior for sure. Thanks so much, Carly. Something to take care against there again for our listeners is always being mindful of the telling versus the showing. If you can show a character going through something, as opposed to telling the reader what they're going through, that does allow the reader to connect with them so much better. And it allows for that empathy to flare up in the reader so much better. And in reading this excerpt, there was a bit more telling in here than than showing them perhaps we would like to see in those opening pages. So just something there as well to be mindful of, because the showing is like zooming us super close to the character and what's happening in the story, whereas the telling maintains that kind of emotional distance, again, which isn't always something that we necessarily want. All right, Carly and Cece, thank you both so much for today's segment. For our Kofi supporters, our monthly supporters will get all four query letters, and for the once-off supporters, there will be two. Okay, so before we go to today's guest, Carly? I wanted to share a good news story. I think you guys saw on social media, but I wanted to let all the podcast listeners know that 
the author of the true crime memoir. It was called Normal is What You Know, Jennifer Ling Roof. I signed her as a client. So good news. We're working together. We're so excited about getting this true crime memoir out there in the world. So I'm very happy. I'm very happy to announce that. That's the second client that I have signed from the podcast. And I'm so thrilled to have her as a client. So welcome, Jennifer. Amazing, Carly. Congratulations. We love hearing good news. And for our listeners, remember, please email us with your good news because we do have a page on our website that is just the good news page. It doesn't have to be that you've landed an agent or that you've sold your manuscript. Perhaps you've had a story placed somewhere. There's so much along this journey that's incredibly, incredibly difficult. So we need to celebrate all the wins that we possibly can. So any win that you've experienced, please email us. We'd love to put it up on that page. Alrighty, now let's go to today's guest. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. 
Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code pod 15 for the month of April at checkout. That's pod P O D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. I'm excited to tell you about two polishing your work sessions that I've got coming up. You can attend one or the other on Saturday afternoon, the 26th of November, or in the evening on Wednesday, the 14th of December. Now, any scene that you've written in your work in progress is the equivalent of your writing DNA. It's a snapshot of your writing in general. Now, chances are, if you aren't ensuring one particular scene is doing the heavy lifting in terms of what a scene needs to accomplish, then you're probably not hitting the mark in most of your scenes. And if your dialogue feels stilted, and if your characters lack emotionality and interiority in one particular scene, they're probably falling short in other scenes as well. You might not be able to afford a full manuscript evaluation done by a professional, but you may not need to. If you're able to take one scene and use the feedback that I give you to assess the rest of your scenes, you'll be able to edit your own work much more critically, knowing exactly what to look out for. And that will make the polishing phase so much easier. Now, in these sessions, you'll submit a full scene with a maximum of 1,700 words. I will then evaluate it, providing practical written feedback within the pages of the text. You'll also be sorted into groups with four other authors who will also critique your work and whose work you will critique in return. I'll be giving you information to guide you through the critique so that you know exactly what to look out for, which will make you so much more critical of your own work. Now, there are only 25 slots available in each session, so it is limited. Get onto my website, biancamaray.com, go to the courses tab to make sure that you register before I close the registrations once we've reached our maximum limits. I'm so looking forward to reading your work. Today's guest is an author, web developer, and content creator. Born and raised in Scarborough, Ontario, she earned an honors BSc from the University of Toronto, then spent over a decade working in the tech startup world in Europe and Canada. Her debut historical fiction novel, The Circus Train, was an instant national bestseller in Canada and has been published worldwide since. It's my pleasure to welcome Amita Parikh. Amita, welcome to the show. Amazing, Bianca. Thank you so much for having me on. It's absolutely wonderful to get to chat to you because I absolutely loved the circus train. It was comped to Water for Elephants and the Night Circus, which I thought were absolutely amazing, amazing comps. And what we do on the podcast is that we have booksellers who listen to our readers who phone in and ask for comp titles because they're so incredibly important to position your novel. So is that how you yourself positioned it when you were querying with agents? Can you tell us a bit about that? 
Yeah, I can. So definitely I had listed the night circus as one that was slightly similar. Water for Elephants, I didn't actually put that one down because I felt since my book was set in Europe, I wasn't really sure that Water for Elephants would be the right comp. But actually in the North American market, it ended up being one that they they really liked. And in terms of other novels, I think I also used Time Traveler's Wife because it was sort of like a love story and All the Light We Cannot See but sort of like a a watered down version of that because I cannot write like Anthony Durr. Yeah, geez, Anthony Durr. Definitely don't run yourself down. This was a a phenomenal, phenomenal read. It crossed so many genres, I thought. And I think that's when books like this really hit the sweet spot because it was very literary, but it was also plot heavy, beautiful language, but also a page turner. And these are the kind of books that agents and editors get so excited about because they reach such a wide demographic. So for our listeners, I just want to read you a description of the book so that you're on the same page as us as Amita and I discuss this. So Water for Elephants meets the night circus in this World War II debut about a magnificent traveling circus, a star-crossed romance, and one girl's coming of age during the darkest of times. So 1938, Lena Papadopoulos has never quite found her place within the circus, even as the daughter of the extraordinary headlining illusionist Theo. Brilliant and curious, Lena yearns for the real-world magic of science and medicine, despite the limitations of her wheelchair. Then her unconventional life takes an exciting turn when she rescues Alexandre, an orphan with his own secrets and a mysterious past. As World War II escalates around them over the years, their friendship blossoms into something deeper while Alexandre trains as the illusionist's apprentice. But when Theo and Alexandre are arrested and contracted to perform in a model town for Jews set up by the Nazis, Lena is separated from everything she knows. Forced to make her own way, Lena must confront her doubts and dare to believe in the impossible herself. So I just read the description and I get goosebumps. There was just so much there to hook the readers. Now, Amita, I think when you and I first spoke, you said that this story wasn't this way when you first planned it. You had another vision for it and then something happened and it changed the course of the story. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. What happened was I couldn't get an agent. And so I decided I needed to change the manuscript, change the plot a little bit. So yeah, essentially there were elements of it from the beginning that have remained into it to now. So Lena, Theo and Alexandra were always in the book, but the bulk of the story when I started writing it and for the first couple of drafts for the first couple of years was set primarily in Greece during the Second World War. There was no train at all, which is very funny to say now because I feel like the entire book, I mean, it's called The Circus Train, so it revolves around that. But uh, yeah, it it was set in Greece during um, before and and during and a little bit after the the German and Italian occupation. But it was it's my first book. And uh, although I'd taken some classes, it was a learning process. And I kind of had to go through that throwing the spaghetti at the wall, trying to figure out what worked, what didn't. And I always say this to, to writers who ask me for advice, who are going through kind of like the querying process and coming up with rejections and things. And, you know, we both know that it's so difficult to predict what's going to do well in publishing. But at the same time, I do think that if your work's good, it'll find somebody somewhere. And if you keep getting no's, then you can't blame the people. You have to look at your work and think, all right, well, what can I do? What can I change? Why isn't it resonating? I I was, I guess, self-aware enough to sort of say like, okay, I need to change something. So I tinkered around with it, put them on a train, sent them across Europe, and now we have the circus train. (laughs) 
I absolutely love stories like this because for my journey to publication, it was the same thing with my debut. I got an agent, but then we went out on submission to publishers and we got kind of 50 rejections. And I used all of that feedback, took out 60,000 words of the novel and started again. And it was still the same story. I was just focusing on a year and three months instead of 40 years of the story. So, and for our listeners, this is so encouraging because I hear from many of you all the time that you keep getting so close with agents that you're getting full requests. Then you send it out, but then they're still rejecting you. And it's, I know how frustrating that is because the closer you get, the more you want it and the more annoying it is and heartbreaking it is that agents don't want it. So Amita, at what point did you decide, okay, a train was going to be the thing that would hook it? Were you getting full requests for the manuscript and getting rejections that gave you feedback that you were able to use? Take us through what that process looked like. Yeah, definitely. So I was, I got, I was very lucky. I got a lot of full requests. I think probably about 85 to 90% of the agents I queried with the first chapter, the first 10 pages, first few chapters, um, and the synopsis requested the full. So I had a lot of people reading the full. Ultimately, nobody offered me representation off of the first kind of draft of it. Well, not first draft, the one I had obviously edited a few times myself before sending it out. I don't know that the feedback was very specific. I mean, there was nothing like, oh, well, you should do this and then it will be better. But it was sort of along the lines of it started out really great and then it kind of lost me halfway through or the ending wasn't as good as I wanted it to be. And that can be a little bit difficult to work with because I'm the kind of person that I actually really like feedback. Uh, I don't think books are written by one individual. Again, we both know that there's a whole team behind everything we do and I'm always looking for ways to improve. So if someone in the industry wants to help me, then I'm, I'm all for it. So there was no specific sort of do this, do that, and then it'll be better. It was just kind of up to me to go back to the drawing board and figure it out. And I think I had a moment, so it took me six years to finish this draft and sell it in, in the form it is in now. And actually it ended up changing a little bit after we sold it to my editors in, in Canada as well. But the draft that did end up selling to publishers was six years in the making. And I think I kind of... I was, I was just thinking about what are the elements of stories that I really like. And it, it was people were connecting to the magic and the circus and the illusion. But I was thinking that so I don't want to give any spoilers away to people, but having Theo, who's the illusionist and the father of Lena, on stuck in Greece, basically stuck in one place, to me, it kind of felt like the stakes aren't really raised as much as they can be. And when we think about plot and conflict, I was like, well, it would actually be more dangerous for them to be traveling through Europe during a war. And that's just basic storytelling 101, right? Like, how can you make it harder for your characters to pursue their dreams and to do what they want to do? Um, and so that's where that kind of came in and the whole train was born. And I grew up performing and doing dance and figure skating and musicals and things like that. So I've always loved costumes and, and grandeur and theater. And so that was really fun for me to write. And it kind of just all came together at that point, because it was so easy for me to pull from childhood inspirations and ballets I'd watched and things and then create the costumes in this sumptuous world of, of a luxury circus. Yeah. And then that was really sort of the turning point and I had to do a bit of fine tuning on the character development as well. But I think it was really sort of, you know, the feedback was like, I like it. I don't love it. It's falling flat for me. So I was like, all right, I gotta, gotta figure it out or just write something else. <laughs> I love what you said there about how it fixed so much of upping of the stakes and the tension because writers are kind of made in the muddling middle of a novel because beginnings, it's easy to be off to the races and endings. 
a lot of people save their jazz hands writing for the third act where all is revealed and etc. But the middle is the tricky part. And here for you, by putting these characters in motion, putting them on a train was just absolutely genius because as you say, so much more tension, so much more conflict, so much more danger as they are navigating this world. For our listeners, always think about these kinds of things. We're not saying give up on your story as it is, give up on your vision as it is. Just what can you change? What can you jiggle around to just elevate it in that way? Before we move on, I actually want to chat to Amita about scenes and chapters and her advice for our listeners on writing really compelling scenes and chapters. But what I also love what you did here between Lena and Theo is this contrast between Lena's very scientific. She wants to do science and medicine and Theo deals with magic and illusion. And it's kind of this juxtaposition between father and daughter and their approach to the world that again creates tension and contrast in a story as opposed to having, you know, you would expect the father to be an illusionist and she herself then wants to be an illusionist. What made you decide to have them on such sort of opposite ends of the scale? Yeah. So again, without wanting to give away any spoilers, this doesn't give away any spoilers. So Lena does have disability as a result of having uh, polio as a child. And so for her, she cannot move her body in the way all of the circus performers do and not. So that's a big reason why she sort of gravitates more to bookish pursuits, I guess, for lack of a better term. You know, she's very studious. But even without that, I actually don't know that that's the main reason. Uh, you know, when I was writing Lena's character, it it was never about her disability defining her. She's very vulnerable, but she's also got this quiet confidence that I really like about her. She actually does know who she is from a very young age and to kind of have the gumption to pursue what she really likes while being surrounded by all this grandeur and luxury of, of the performing arts world, I think says a lot about her strength. But when it came to creating parent and child relationship, it, I just think about all of the things that we see, even in modern days, right? Like how many stories do we hear about in real life, right? Like, you know, my family, other families, where it's like the parents have done one thing career-wise and they think they know what's best for their kid or they think they, well, why wouldn't you want to follow my footsteps? Like I've been doing this. So it would be so much easier for you. But come on, when have we ever listened to our parents, right? <laughs> I think that's just human nature. So, uh, you know, in creating the story as well and the conflicts between characters, I wanted to delve into things that are timeless. Like that's parent-child not being on the same page about life choices. That's been happening for thousands of years and it will continue to happen. And so I think that's actually something that is very relatable to nowadays, even though it's a historical book, it's something that people kind of go through all the time. Yeah. And in terms of characterization, Lena is such an interesting character because there is this vulnerability, there is this disability, but then there is this fiery kind of strong nature, strong-willed character. And this really helps the reader root for her because you have that contrast of vulnerability and strength. Okay, so let's talk now about writing at a scene and a chapter level, because something I get a lot of questions about, and we got a lot of questions about this at the retreat, is how do you know when a chapter is complete? How do you know that a chapter is self-contained? How long should a chapter be? Can a chapter have multiple scenes? Should it just be one scene? So I thought we'd pick your brain today in terms of the advice you have for writers in terms of writing on the scene and the chapter level. So I think the short answer that nobody wants to hear is that it depends on the book you're writing. I will say that for the, the type of book that The Circus Train is and the books that I tend to write working on book two, 
they're plot driven, you know, and they're, they're driven by characters there. I do follow sort of like a structure. There are a lot of books out there. There's one called Save the Cat. I'm sure you've heard of it. I'm sure a lot of your listeners have also heard of it. But, uh, you know, I'll, I'll follow something like that or I'll even look at the way screenplays are structured where they'll have kind of like the midpoint of like the highs and the lows. And then I like books with happy endings. So, again, no spoilers, but mine has a happy ending. But, you know, there's got to be a roller coaster along the way. So that's the overall arc that I'll follow. But in terms of writing the individual chapters and scenes, so it's interesting because some people think that okay, each scene should have its own chapter. But actually, when you think about a scene, they tend to be shorter than most chapters. So I'm thinking about a typical traditional fiction book length work, probably between 80,000 and let's say 100,000 words on the longer side. So if you break that down into chapters, you're looking at anything from maybe 2,500 words to about 4,000 words. And to just have one scene be that long is actually quite long. So what I like to do personally, and again, this this isn't for everybody, but I really do like to kind of plot everything out on, I have, I have an Excel spreadsheet and I'll write down chapters one to 42 and then I will have the word count and then I will say what happens. Like to me, it, do, it doesn't matter how long something is and it doesn't actually matter if it's a couple of scenes in one chapter or one scene for one chapter only, but something has to shift, right? Something has to change. So at the start of it, it's whether it's a, one character having a conversation with somebody else or one character wanting something and they've either been met with a new obstacle by the end of the chapter or they've made progress towards their goal or there's been like a new development. I think one of the problems that I actually struggled with early on in my career was writing prose that may have been very nice, but it would just sort of meander and I would just read it back and think after I'd given it a couple of weeks to sit and I think, okay, well, this, it reads nicely, but like, what happens, right? Like what happens? And we live in this world for better, for worse nowadays, where everybody, everyone's attention spans are shorter and people want things to just be happening all the time, which is good and bad. But I think with, with every chapter and to keep the momentum moving forward, I would say to aspiring writers out there, what's the goal? What do you want to achieve by the end of it? Has your protagonist moved closer towards their ultimate goal? Have they moved back? It doesn't matter if they move back. So obstacles are great for building conflict, right? But I think there needs to be tension and something that happens. It doesn't have to be huge, but you can kind of like break it down and build it into, into the overall flow of the plot. And then in terms of the actual scenes, yeah, that's tricky because I have some chapters in the book where maybe they're all about Lena or I'll have others where it's a little bit of Lena and then I'll have a little asterisk denoting a new scene that takes place somewhere else. So I think that kind of comes more in the editing stages, at least for me. So I try not to get bogged down in too much. Like I'll have my outline, like I said, in my Excel spreadsheet. But then if I think like, oh, actually there needs to be something else here, I'll just put in a placeholder for it or I'll just write it and I'll, I'll say... I'm going to come back to that because I don't like to edit as I'm writing drafts. I like to finish the whole thing and then come back and sort of move things around like a puzzle. Amazing. And in terms of the, you say, okay, you put the asterisk and then you move. What for you denotes a good sign that a scene needs to now move somewhere else? Is it the passing of time? Is it that the character has moved to a new location? Is it like what normally triggers that for you? Yeah, so both of those things are great examples. So the one thing that was very tricky with my book, as you know, because you know, you've read it, is that it did take place over what, twenty years? It took place over a couple of decades and they were traveling to all these different locations and things, and I couldn't possibly say today they did this and tomorrow they did that. It would right, so it would be okay, February nineteen forty two, and then we would leap to March nineteen forty two, this and that, right? So I think those are 
those are always great places to kind of have those breaks, whether it is a brand new chapter or a brand new scene, it could be either or. And and it could also just be characters having a discussion and they've come to the end of it. And then it moves on to another character who's dealing with something else, which could also be the same day, but they're just not in the same room or in the same place as the people in the previous scene. Right. So in terms of those time shifts, so if it was December of this and March of that, how much of that was dictated by what was actually going on in the world in terms of your research, in terms of how the war was escalating? Did you look at the kind of backdrop, the historical backdrop and go, these were dates at which really important things were happening and therefore I'm going to shift my story to align with those dates or not really? What did that process look like? Yeah, 100%. I based everything off of actual timelines and actual real events that happened. So before I even started writing the fiction part of it, there was so much research into, first of all, what was happening in Greece, because that's where all of it was set. So I did a ton of research into the events that happened there during the Second World War. And then it was when they started going all over Europe, there was there was a lot more because there were different things happening in different countries at different times. And depending on where they were, I had to make sure that I was staying true to the real life events as, as true as I could be. You know, it, it is fiction. It's not a historical textbook. So I've taken liberties. But yeah, everything, I had a timeline. Again, it was like on my wall. I had, this is what happened here. This is what happened there. Didn't end up using all the events. I'm sure you know from your own book writing experience that there's a lot that's left on the cutting room floor. And the other thing too that's tricky with historical fiction in particular is you don't want to sound like you're giving people a history lecture or I guess trying to sound overly smart for lack of a better term. Like this and this, this happened at this time. It's It's got to be like a backdrop, right? Like some of the feedback I've gotten from readers is that like, oh, it's, it's set during the war, but it's kind of the backdrop of the war. And I didn't feel like I was completely immersed in it because they are still on a circus for, you know, the beginning part of it. It's told mainly from a young girl's point of view. And so her point of view is going to be very different to an adult who's dealing with it, right? And as well, what's so important with historical fiction is that we are writers who are coming at it from a point in the future. So we have the benefit of hindsight. We know the implications and the repercussions of each thing as it happened, whereas people living in that moment didn't see it. It's the same as now we've lived through COVID. I think in 20 years time, when we look back on this time, we can have a very different view of it as we see what this meant in historical context. Whereas, you know, at the moment, we don't have that view. And so it's important when you place characters in that moment that you cannot give them the benefit of the hindsight that you as the author have? Is that ever like a temptation? I love that you brought this point up because it's been something that a couple of readers have mentioned and been been a bit frustrated with saying things like, oh, well, wouldn't they have known that they were in danger? And, you know, I'm thinking, well, no, they would no, we know they were in danger because of we have history and we saw what happened and we know the truth. But the reality is, is that there was I mean, so much was hidden and people just did not know what was going on while they were living through it. And again, because the bulk of the book is is told from through the eyes of a young girl, there's even more that she doesn't know, right? So I personally feel like I took, I put in a lot of care and work to try and make it true to life at the time, but I recognize that it can be difficult for readers who kind of read historical books and think like, oh, well, shouldn't they have been more upset? Or, But it's like, no, people are living their life and they're going through it. I mean, you just mentioned COVID as a perfect example. When it started, I don't think any of us knew it would take two years and more than two years, we're still going through it, still trying to find our feet. But we just did the best we could because we didn't know what was going to happen. And, and that's like that's like so many historical events. Yeah, and I think human beings and human nature, we kind of 
err on the side of optimism so many times. Like when you're reading things about World War II, people are like, why weren't Jewish people fleeing? Why didn't they realize that they were all, you know, all these terrible things were going to happen? But even like during COVID, we were going, this is going to be over in a month. This is not going to get that bad. We, It's never going to escalate to this point. And so that's what I loved about your book is that it was so true to that time and to human nature, very much so. And, you know, for our listeners as well, even if you aren't writing like historical fiction that happens way in the past, unless you're writing a fantasy novel that's not really grounded in the modern day or if you're writing about characters who are really isolated, it is important to look at what was happening at that time because nothing frustrates me more than if I'm reading a book that happened in the UK at the time Princess Diana died and it's not even mentioned. It's not even this character's consciousness that Princess Diana has died. That feels so inauthentic to me because we are all a product of our environment. We're all a product of our society and the larger world and these things impact us. People from the older generation will remember till the day they die where they were when Kennedy was assassinated. And I will always remember where I was when I heard about Princess Diana, things like that. So it's important to know what's happening in the world, in the place where your story takes place, because it will affect your character. And things like Valentine's Day and Christmas, if your character's Christian or whatever, if you can't have a novel happening in December without alluding to Christmas decorations, etc., etc. So these are all really important things. Amita, our time is up. I don't know how this happened. Before we say goodbye to you, do you have any particular advice for our listeners who are perhaps writing historical fiction, something that you've learned along the way, some wisdom that you have to impart to them? That's a really tricky question. Um, so much that I want to say. I think uh, for me, I would say don't. I want to say don't get bogged down in the details, but at the same time, I feel like the details are really where so much of the story comes true to life. I mean, I just remember doing all the research I did and literally like searching for the name of a shampoo that somebody would have found in a store in London in 1939, and I did it and I found it, and then I said, you know, so and so's hair smelled like this shampoo. It was a tiny little thing, but I think it did add authenticity. So I'd say maybe, you know, do your research. Don't feel sad about what you have to leave on the cutting room floor because there's going to be a lot. And hey, you know what? You've done it. So maybe you could turn it into something for book two. And then lastly, it's it's really just what every published author says is you have that resilience and have the persistence to keep going because it's not easy. It wasn't easy for me. It was not an overnight success, six years, and then two years of editing with my editors before it came out. So But I think I'm an example of what can happen if you don't give up and you just keep believing in yourself. I love that. I love ending on such an encouraging note. Thank you so much, Amita. For our listeners, we will put the Circus Train on our bookshop.org affiliate page. If you purchase it from there, you're supporting an independent bookstore, the podcast, and the author. Thank you so much, Amita. I hope we can have you back for the next one. Thanks for having me, Bianca. I appreciate it. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. 
To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.